Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. We've got a lot to cover and we're running a little bit late. I know some of our attendees were attending Father's Mass and uh, I heard it was very, very beautiful. And thank you, Father, for offering that. And so with that, we'll go ahead and begin in prayer. And then I have a few announcements about the curriculum. If you could please stand. The Lord be with you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let us pray. We'll pray again together. If you have it, the holy card that I handed out last night for the erection of the ordinariates. Eternal Father, we place before you the project of forming the personal ordinariates for Anglicans seeking full communion with the Catholic Church. We thank you for this initiative of Pope Benedict XVI, and we ask that through the Holy Spirit, the ordinariates may become families of charity, peace, and the service of the poor, centers for Christian unity and reconciliation, communities that welcome and evangelize teaching the faith in all its fullness, celebrating the liturgy and sacraments with prayer for reverence, and maintaining a distinctive patrimony of Christian faith and culture. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Thank you, Thank you Father. I just want to point out a couple of things about our curriculum, because we're coming to the end of our curriculum year on November 1st, and we start our new curriculum year. Every year at the Institute of Catholic Culture, we cycle through the whole story of salvation history, the whole cycle of theology, philosophy, literature, and so forth. We begin in November with history of the ancient and biblical world, pre-Christian philosophy and philosophy of human nature, Jewish and pagan thought, Old Testament studies this year. This next year, we're going to be studying the prophets, and we're also going to be studying the Maccabees during Advent, religion and literature of the ancient world, and so forth. And then we move on progressively through history until the summertime we're dealing with modern issues. You'll see history of the church in the modern world, modern philosophical issues or errors, which this talk falls into, okay? And modern theological issues, biblical apologetics, we did kingdom of the cults, modern Christian literature, we did uh, screw tape letters, and then the moral life, and we, we did our bioethics conference out at Christendom College. The education you are receiving, as Father Scalia said to us two times ago when he visited, he said, it's better than the seminary education he received in Rome. Now, that's sad on one side, but it's also a great gift to you. And so I encourage you, please, please, prayerfully consider, you pray about it. First of all, you pray about how generous you are with the Lord in your parish. Not just financially, but giving of yourself. And then also, are you supporting those things around you that are making a difference in our church today? And I think you'll agree that the Institute of Catholic Culture is a part of that and making, making a difference. It's very unusual, by the way, to draw 200 people for a talk on the Lambeth Conference. Who knows what the Lambeth Conference is, right? 
but we're doing it at the Institute of Catholic Culture. Amen? Amen. Please welcome back Father Eric Bergman. Those of you who might have done the light reading, I don't know if there's any many copies back there, but I reminded you last night that if you haven't picked up the uh, prayer card, you may. And there's also the copies of the Apostolic Constitution, Anglican Orum Chetibus, uh, which, you, which you may uh, want to read also. I'm going to talk about it tonight, but we'll uh, learn a lot simply by going over the words of our Holy Father. The uh, name of the talk tonight is Love Requited, the role of Anglican Orum Chetibus in bringing many separated brothers back home to Rome. The change that I described last night in the Anglican Communion was rather radical for those of you who were not here. In only 50 years, the bishops of the Anglican Communion went from deploring the use of contraception to declaring it a right. In 1908, they deplored the use of contraception, and by 1958, the bishops of the Anglican Communion had said that family planning is a right, a human right. In just 73 years, the Episcopal Church USA, the American branch of the Anglican Communion, went from approving the use of contraception in 1930 to blessing sodomy in 2003, less than the lifetime of a person. Now, how could such a change happen? The answer is that holiness is what holiness does. The change was not as rapid as it appears at first glance. For one, the birth rate in England, Europe, and America had dropped radically in the 19th century, from 7 in 1800 to 3.5 children per woman in her lifetime in 1900. So that is, if they measured how many children the average woman had, from age 15 to 45, the average in 1800 was 7, the average in 1900 was 3.5. Now the Malthusian League in Great Britain, the Malthusians, you can imagine, were dedicated to population control, and they began their league in the 1870s. They noted that the drop among the clergy in the Church of England was even more precipitous than the drop in the birth rate among the general populace. The census that England, like us, takes every 10 years, the census showed that in 1874, the average Anglican clergyman had 5.2 living children. By 1911, just three years after the bishops of the Anglican Communion had deplored the use of contraception, only 2.3 children were born to the average Anglican clergyman. That is a drop of 55% in only 37 years. A drop in the birth rate among Anglican clergymen of 55% in only 37 years. Now, the hypocrisy of the priests was exposed and it indicated that they were not living what they taught, what the Anglican Communion taught as official church doctrine. And so, 
when Lambeth came around in 1930, 19 years after 1911, 19 years after the Anglican clergymen were having just 2.3 children per family, it was easily surrendered. They had stopped living what they taught, and so they decided rather easily to give it up. Now, the title of the talk, Love Requited, refers to two phenomena associated with the Catholic Church's fidelity to the constant teaching that contraception is an inherent evil. One, the Church is responding generously to Anglicans from across the globe who fell in love with the Church's teaching before they were even reconciled to Holy Mother Church. Many of the Anglican clergymen who have asked to be reconciled to Holy Mother Church, many of them have been drawn to the Church precisely because only the Catholic Church, among all the institutions of the world, has remained firm in opposing contraception. Only the Catholic Church has maintained the teaching that contraception is inherently evil. Even the Orthodox have given this up. Now, last night I made reference to the fact that I am a married priest, and the deacon told me that you didn't know that. Uh, I didn't mean to shock you. I, I, I thought that you knew. I am the father of six children that have been born, and my wife is pregnant with our seventh, due on All Saints Day this year. That's why she's not here. Uh, she is in Virginia, but taking care of six children by herself while being seven and a half months pregnant is not easy. So she's back at a friend's house taking care of the kids. Now, I am by no means alone among the Catholic Church's married clergy. As I said before, there are 100 married priests in the United States. Soon there will be uh, 100 more, almost overnight. The uh, number of priests who have applied for the apostolic constitution that I'm going to talk about in a bit. More than 100 uh, Anglican clergy in the United States have asked to come into the Catholic Church and be ordained Catholic priests. So we're going to see, really, by the fall, or rather the spring of next year, we'll have the number of married priests in America will double. But uh, uh, if we think about uh, the founding pastor of the first Anglican Use Parish, many of you were at the Anglican Use Mass tonight, and you got to see the liturgy that I celebrate on a daily basis. Uh, the founding pastor uh, of the first Anglican Use Parish in San Antonio, Texas, Father Chris Phillips, uh, is the father of five children. Uh, Father Oliver Vitor, a classmate of mine, when we went to seminary together at Yale University, is the father of six children. Uh, Jeff Wharton, uh, one of my sister's former chaplains while she was uh, stationed at Fort Bragg. Uh, Father Jeff Wharton is the, I should say while her husband was stationed at Fort Bragg. Uh, Father Wharton, who is now a chaplain in the army and just spent a year in Iraq, Father Wharton is the father of seven children. In England, you might have seen the news that when the ordinariate was erected, one of the men who was ordained is the father of nine. And uh, the, rate, the age difference is from 21 down to an infant. Uh, his wife had a baby this year. Our love for the church and her magisterium and her way of life has been welcomed, as have our gifts, which we have to offer. That's the first love requited. The second is that the church has maintained this teaching out of her great love for mankind. Our love for this teaching 
our love for the church is simply a response to the love that Holy Mother Church initiated. That through the church, Jesus Christ initiated. To become a Catholic is to change one's perspective about the church. As a Protestant, I sometimes imagine that the church was a threat to my freedom. But once I became a Catholic, I understood that the church is rather the greatest defender of liberty in the world. Liberty is the freedom to do what is right. License is the freedom to do what is wrong, or rather, the freedom to do whatever one wants. And this addiction that our culture has to contraception is an addiction ultimately to license. What we have to be after, what we ought to desire, is instead liberty, the freedom to do what is right, the freedom to do what is virtuous. So before I describe to you the means that the Holy Father is using to reconcile thousands of people to the Catholic Church from the Anglican Communion, a careful distinction has to be made as to why so many people from Anglicanism are becoming Catholic. I'm going to talk to you about the difference between the occasion for our conversion to the Catholic faith and the reason for our conversion to the Catholic faith. I talked yesterday about several occasions that prompted Anglicans to reconsider their presumptions about the Catholic Church, about the fullness of the teaching as is found in the magisterium. First occasion was the ordination of women in the Episcopal Church USA, which was formally passed in 1976, but really began in 1974, which was, as you well know, a radical departure from apostolic order and tradition. No longer after the ordination of women was passed by the Episcopal Church in 1976 could the Episcopal Church seriously claim to be Catholic, to share the apostolic faith with all the rest of the Christians in the world. Second, I mentioned the acceptance in 2003 informally of the homosexual lifestyle when the Episcopal Church as a body approved the election. It actually happened at their general convention. They approved the election of a man who had left his wife and two children and then had taken up with a man. The Diocese of New Hampshire elected this man to be their bishop. More recently, there has been the introduction of legislation in England to permit the ordination of female bishops, which I don't really understand the distinction between a female bishop and a female priest, but for many people in England, this has been the last straw. Now, these occasions that I just described, the ordination of women, the acceptance of the homosexual lifestyle, the ordination of women as bishops, these are simply catalysts, what I call occasions for a conversion. The reason we convert, the reason we convert is much different. To leave the Episcopal Church USA does not mean that we will become Catholic. By her own count, the Episcopal Church USA right now loses 52,000 members a year. Incidentally, the Catholic Church gets 200,000 new members every year. Conversions, that's not the baptisms. That's conversions to the Catholic faith. 200,000. The Episcopal Church 
loses 52,000 members a year, 1,000 a week. Now, they are not all becoming Roman Catholic. An occasion to leave one's denomination is not the same as a reason to be reconciled to Holy Mother Church. They are different ideas, and we can never confuse them. One of the ways that we have been maligned is that we became Catholic, for example, because we're opposed to homosexuality. This makes no sense. This makes no sense. We have to have something positive that we embrace. It can't simply be objection to something that's wrong, objection to something that's evil. We must also have something positive that we embrace. I came to reject the position of the Episcopal Church USA on contraception when I was in seminary. I did not even know about Lambeth 1930, and you can imagine they didn't teach me about it either. What I embraced was the church's stance on the sanctity of human life. I read, as I told you yesterday, Evangelium Vitae, the Gospel of Life, the Holy Father's encyclical from 1995. And this was one of the encyclicals that put me on the road to becoming Catholic. I am not anti-contraception as much as I am pro-life. And very simply, the practice of contraception is anti-life. In embracing the church's stance on life, I came to embrace the Catholic Church. I embraced the truth. I did not simply reject error. Occasion versus reason. The same can be said of those who embrace Catholicism after they see the endless divisions that happen among Protestants. Do you know how many Protestant denominations there are in the world today? 33,000. There's one Catholic church, and there are 22 Orthodox churches, and there are 33,000 33, Protestant denominations. The people who embrace the truth are not so much anti-division as they are pro-unity. And the unity of Catholics from all over the globe draws them into the Catholic Church. To be clear, nobody becomes a Catholic because of what he loathes. Nobody becomes a Catholic because of what he loathes in his old denomination. He becomes a Catholic because what he loves in the Catholic Church. So now I can talk to you about the pastoral provision. In 1976, as I said, the Episcopal Church passed uh, at their general convention the ordination of women by three votes. And this is an interesting thing about the Episcopal Church. It's governed democratically, uh, which is a really crazy way to govern a church. Uh, it means that, means that any doctrine at all can be changed as long as you can get enough people to agree with you. 1976 there was a society of which Father Jim Parker was a member, as well as an organization called the Protodiocese of St. Augustine of Canterbury. And these two groups made an appeal to Paul VI to be received as clergymen in the Catholic Church, even though they were married. And Paul VI died. Then we had John Paul I, and then we had John Paul II. So it took four years for the Holy See to answer this petition. But in 1980, the pastoral provision decision came down, and it said, indeed, 
not only will we take in Anglican clergy who are married and ordain them Catholic priests, we will also allow them to retain certain elements of their patrimony that are dear to them. And that was manifested in this, the Book of Divine Worship. This is the liturgy. If you were at the Mass tonight over at Holy Spirit Church in Annandale, you got to see how Anglicans, or uh, I should say Anglo-Catholics, worship, and the Holy Father in his generosity has allowed us to retain our form of worship. It is a use of the Roman rite. Uh, We know that uh, there's no such thing as liturgical uniformity. There is only doctrinal uniformity. There is a difference in discipline in how we articulate the faith. And we articulate the same faith as all of you in a little bit different way. And so we have been given the Book of Divine Worship, first used in a parish, as I said, in 1983. And since that time, a number of pastoral provision parishes have been erected. There are now seven Anglican use communities in the United States. And you say, wow, the past provision has been around since 1980, and there's only seven parishes. What happened? Why are there so few when there's clearly a desire on the part of so many Anglicans to be reconciled to Holy Mother Church? Why are there so few communities? And the reason is that many priests who applied, many Episcopal priests who applied to be accepted into the pastoral provision were rejected by their local ordinary. And some places where the ordinary was willing, the Latin ordinary, was willing to take the man, they would not take his community. And they told people, just go and be reconciled to Holy Mother Church at your local territorial parish. Many bishops said, no, you can't come in as communities, you can only come in as individuals. The pastoral provision then was available to the English when in 1992, their democratically governed church decided to ordain women as well. Again, all the Episcopal churches of the world, all the Anglican churches of the world are governed democratically, and so they were able to lobby and get women's ordination passed in England as well. Well, 587 men, after that happened, left the Church of England and were ordained Catholic priests, 120 of whom were married. But the English bishops said, no, you cannot bring your communities, you cannot bring the people into the church whom you have pastored, some cases, for the past 30 years. In fact, at the time, it was said that Pope Benedict wondered, at the time he was called a Ratzinger, he wondered, what are the English bishops afraid of? And if you want to read that story and how that whole uh, sad chapter in the history of the Catholic Church went down, you can read the book The Roman Option by William Audie. It was a tragedy, but yet it was a gift because God always brings good, right? God always finds a way to bring good out of terrible things. So we see that the weaknesses of the pastoral provision were that the local ordinary could reject both the individual Anglican clergyman and his parish, or both. There was also a second weakness. The National Bishops' Conference, as happened in England, could say, no, we don't want any of these guys coming in and bringing their communities. In fact, only in the United States, only in the United States, were the bishops generous enough to allow the pastoral provision to be implemented. 
nowhere else in the world. And we think, I told you yesterday that in 1930, the English people had conquered a third of the globe, right? The third largest Christian community in the world is the Anglican Communion. The first, obviously, is the Catholic Church. The second largest Christian communion is the Orthodox. The third is the Anglican Communion. Between 77 and 80 million Christians. You can think about how many Christians that represents, how many nations that represents. And yet, the only nation, the only conference of Catholic bishops which permitted the pastoral provision to be implemented was the United States. And so, our Holy Father, who was prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. You remember when he was still Cardinal Ratzinger, right? He was the Pope's right-hand man. And as such, he was responsible for presenting every single dossier of a married Anglican clergyman to the Holy Father for him to approve. It was his responsibility. So Cardinal Ratzinger became very, very familiar with the weaknesses of the pastoral provision. How so many Latin bishops were not generous. How they refused to receive these men and sponsor them for ordination, and how so many more refused to receive these communities. And so he was positioned perfectly then to do something about it. He was elected, as you know, in 2005, and in 2009, he wrote that document, which I handed out, the, the Apostolic Constitution, Anglicanorum Cedibus, which just means groups of Anglicans. The Latin translation of Anglicanorum Cedibus just is translated groups of Anglicans. And he saw this, these are his words, of course, he saw this as a movement, all of these people wanting to come into the church, he saw this as a movement of the Holy Spirit. He said, in recent times, the Holy Spirit has moved groups of Anglicans to petition repeatedly and assistantly to be received into full Catholic communion, individually as well as corporately. So, he has decided to erect basically nationwide dioceses made up of Anglican converts to the Catholic faith. Parishes all over the United States are going to be erected, which are made up of Anglican converts to the Catholic faith. The way that the Holy Father gets around the weaknesses of the pastoral provision is that it is up to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith to erect the ordinariate. The National Conference of Bishops has a role to play consultatively, but even if they rejected it, it doesn't matter. The CDF erects the ordinariate. The method our Holy Father has given us is a method for evangelization and the reconciliation of our separated brothers. Two ways are primary that the Holy Father accomplishes this. First is through the liturgy, when I showed you the Book of Divine Worship. So an Anglican who loves his liturgy goes into a typical Catholic church and it is, for the most part, alien to him. But if he comes into an Anglican youth parish, he finds the fullness of the Catholic Church with a liturgy that is familiar. And therefore, the liturgy in the typical Latin rite parish is not a stumbling block for him. 
But what I'm really going to talk about tonight is how the apostolic constitution will reconcile people through the culture. How the apostolic constitution reconciles people to Holy Mother Church through the culture. And this part of my talk I call unity is not uniformity and diversity is not disloyalty. (laughs) Unity is not uniformity and diversity in terms of discipline is not disloyalty. As I said, the average Latin Rite parish is an alien environment to most Protestants. For example, first, the size. Do you know what the average size is of Protestant communities in the United States? Protestant ecclesial communities, what's the average size? 75 members. (laughs) Have you ever found a Catholic parish that small? Secondly, second alien thing is uh, fundraising. Up in Scranton, just before I left home, my wife and I were driving through town and we were going by a uh, local parish in the city of Scranton. And it had a big sign for the bingo that they do every week. And on top of that sign, over top of it, was one of these signs that Miller Lite puts together and it said Beer Bash to benefit the... I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, I'm not lying. It says Beer Bash to benefit the parish. This is an alien concept to most Protestants, as you can imagine. <laughs> so, the third thing is the lack of fellowship after worship. Uh, I describe what happens after the typical Latin Catholic Mass as uh, fire in the nave. <laughs> they fly out of church so quickly that you must imagine there must be a fire in there. (laughs) Now, these three things, a lot of Protestants can get over. They can get over the fact that the Catholic parish is so much larger. They can get over the fact that their parish has beer bash and bingo. They can get over the fact that nobody wants to talk to them after church. But the biggest shock is the number of cultural Catholics. The biggest shock to the convert from Protestantism when he becomes involved in his local Latin Rite parish is the number of cultural Catholics who actually frown upon the convert's full embrace of the faith and treat him like he's crazy. The convert has come into the church only to be confronted by total strangers who question his decision to have a large family. He learns quickly that Catholics of conviction are in the average parish. Obviously, there's many exceptions. He learns quickly that Catholics of conviction are in the minority in most Catholic parishes. And the majority expect him to assimilate according to American culture. Don't stand out. And so the convert begins to search for a parish where people will congratulate him because his wife is pregnant with their seventh child. And so we move on to the idea of creative minorities. In the parishes that are going to be erected 
four former Protestants through the Apostolic Constitution Anglicanorum Cheribus, we see the value of small parishes made up of people who have all chosen, down to the last person, have all chosen to adhere to the fullness of the Catholic faith. In my parish, every single person that is a member chose to become Catholic. He was not baptized as an infant. He was not confirmed when his parents decided to become Catholic when he was 13. They know their fellow believers in these parishes. They tithe and they have after Mass a coffee hour. Or like tonight we had wine and cheese. That's why I was late. (laughs) I didn't have any wine. I'll have that afterwards. But the biggest thing is not the fellowship, not the tithing, not knowing everybody that's in church with them. The biggest thing is that these communities have a pastor who has chosen the faith. And so therefore, all of his parishioners, all of his parishioners will be encouraged to live it out. And they will never be subtly dissuaded from the awesome choice that they have made. These parishes will be part of the creative minorities of which our Holy Father has spoken. He has called for within the church creative minorities that will rise up and really be the leaven that leavens the whole lump. Creative minorities are a means of renewal and reform. They will be parishes that reflect the church's teaching rather than communities that by and large reject the authority under which they ostensibly fall. Think about how many parishes you know of, and perhaps I think this diocese is in a large part of exception to what I'm talking about tonight, <laughs> but think about how many parishes you know of in other places, sometimes entire dioceses, which seem to, through what they promote, reject the authority of the Holy Father and the Magisterium. These small parishes, which no bishop will have the ability to prevent, these small parishes which are going to be established all over the United States, all over England and Wales, all over Australia, all over South Africa, all over India, these small parishes will be better able to resist assimilation because every week that a guy goes to church, he isn't going to be asked, so how many kids are you going to have? You take that seriously, what the Holy Father said in Humani Vitae? And so I come to the assimilationist tendencies of the average American Catholic. The trend among American Catholics since 1928 has been assimilation to fit in. What happened in 1928? Anybody know? Al Smith ran for president. And at the time, the KKK was at the apex of its power in the history of the United States. People think the KKK was really powerful after uh, the Civil War, but really, Nathan Bedford Forrest, who founded it, disowned it, and went around preaching reconciliation of the races. The real apex of the power of the KKK was in the 20s. And what did they do? They went full bore against the candidacy of Al Smith. And so Catholics thought, wow, maybe I just need to become like everybody else, and then they'll accept me. 
Now this trend was formalized when President Kennedy forswore his faith in Houston at a meeting before a bunch of Baptist pastors. He did that in order to get elected. He said that the Catholic faith that he held would have no bearing upon how he would govern the nation. He said that formally before he was elected. I went to his grave today, so let me, I have to say that I love him, but he was sadly misguided, and we have to pray for the repose of his soul. Parishes that are creative minorities within the culture understand that the solution to Catholic alienation in American society is not to conform to the culture. The solution is to convert the people. There's something wrong with them if they think that because he's a Catholic, Al Smith can't be president. There's something wrong with them. The solution to this conundrum is not to say, okay, I'll give up my Catholic faith. The solution is to become evangelists and convert these crazy bigots. So, we come to some hopeful trends. First, obviously, I came here to talk to you about the establishment of the ordinariates. It's coming later this year, and so you're going to have communities, as I said, all over the country that will resist this horrible tendency of American Catholics to assimilate to American culture. Let's think about how many Catholic legislators in the state of New York just passed the gay marriage bill. That is assimilation. From 1928 to 2011, look what happened to New York. The second thing I want to draw attention to, which is a hopeful trend, is the embrace by thousands, thousands and thousands of people of the theology of the body of blessed Pope John Paul II. Do you know that there's a church nearby here called Truro Church that's going to a conference with Christopher West on the theology of the body? They're Anglicans. And they're going to have Christopher West come in there and tell them that contraception's wrong. <laughs> I'm, pre I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. Christopher West gets to talk to the people who are doing it. Third hopeful trend is the rebellion of our youth. So many young couples today are rebelling against the contraceptive practices of their parents. They're angry in some cases, sad in others, that their moms and dads didn't give them what they wanted most, a sibling. And so we see today that 11% of women who give birth today in the United States, 11% of women giving birth today have, are having their fourth child. That is the highest number since the baby boom. The baby boom ended in 1964. 11% of women who give birth in the United States of America are having their fourth child or more. The alternative to this culture that we live in, this culture of death, the alternative is the Catholic Church. The people who are part of these trends, this trend of people converting to Catholicism, obviously people who are interested in the theology of the body, people who are having lots of children, even if they aren't Catholic, 
the people who are part of these trends are ripe for the picking to be founders of creative minority communities, not only in the ordinariates that are going to be erected around the world, within parishes, not only in Latin Rite, but also in our Eastern Catholic communities. Creative minorities can rise up not only in the ordinariates, although this is one of the methods that the Holy Father is using. These creative minorities can rise up in your own parishes. You can begin communities of people who create a safe space for people who want to live out the Catholic faith in all of its fullness. Because the reality is, people who have chosen the faith like this, they are happy with their choice. And I think that people who have embraced the fullness of the faith and chose it as adults, you'll find that there's a certain joy about them. And they never talk of their Catholicism as if it were a burden. They always talk of it in terms of being an awesome blessing. The culture in which we live, and unfortunately too often the culture in Latin Rite parishes, the culture desires to steal the joy of happy parents. So Catholics who are living what I talked about with regard to the evil of contraception, people who are living this out need a refuge and a home base from which to evangelize. As we evangelize, of course, it's not going to be all peaches and cream. We're going to have to, uh, in a real way, bear the cross. This is what Catholics were unwilling to do in 1928. Uh, The reality is that when Al Smith was defeated horribly by Herbert Hoover uh, because of all the bigots in our nation, the Catholics retreated instead of saying, we got to convert these crazy people. So we're going to expect, with this new evangelization, that we're going to have a lot of resistance from the culture of death. The great evangelists of the Catholic Church were prepared to suffer martyrdom. If we think about St. Patrick, who was enslaved by the Irish, but then went back to convert them, he was prepared to die. We think of uh, St. Augustine of Canterbury, who was sent to England to convert the English. He was prepared to die. And then we think, of course, of all the people that actually have died, like St. Boniface, who died converting the Germans. Or uh, St. Isaac Jogues, who died converting the Indians in North America. Thus, the creative minorities that we foster can't be seduced into nurturing a fortress mentality. That was the mentality that was present in America before 1928. The riots, anti-Catholic riots that took place in Philadelphia in 1844 led the Bishop of Philadelphia to demand that every parish have a school. And so the Catholics in America retreated into a Catholic ghetto. They took their kids out of the public schools and decided simply to raise them the way they wanted, which was a good thing. The problem was that as they saw their children dying in the streets, as they saw their own loved ones dying, they didn't say, there's something wrong with them who are killing us for being Catholic. And so they built a fort. And it worked. 
didn't work to evangelize, but it allowed them to maintain their faith at least until 1928 when they gave up the fort and decided to become like every other American. The fortress mentality preserved Catholics from outside attack, but it did nothing to convert the barbarians at the gate. The Catholics of these creative minority communities which we're going to establish throughout the world must not then be on the defensive. To be on the defenses is to assume the posture of the devil. What did Jesus say to Peter? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So who's behind the gates? The devil. We, the church, are on the offensive, storming the gates. So when we become on the defensive and create a Catholic ghetto, we assume the posture of the devil. And that's why the Catholics of the 19th century didn't convert America. Because they assumed the defensive posture, which is never the posture of evangelization. The purpose, then, of the ordinariates that are going to be erected is not to preserve anything so much as it is to evangelize the culture. This section of the talk I call suffering as reparation. Because we can expect to suffer in evangelizing the culture, we, what we must endure will be reparation for the sins of our youth. After all, those of us like me who came into the church in 2005, spent some time, uh, like St. Paul, persecuting the true faith. And we are going to be making reparation for the sins of our fathers, who separated themselves from the bosom of Holy Mother Church more than 475 years ago. When we became Catholic, when my family became Catholic in the last few years, we were on both sides of the family, we were the first Catholics in, in our families in 450 years. The suffering that creative minorities in Latin Rite parishes must endure will be reparation for the failure these past 170 years of the Catholic Church in the United States to convert the American people. Because, truth be told, the Catholic Church, in terms of evangelism, has failed. Has failed to convert a people who need to be converted. We would not have legalized abortion. We wouldn't even have legalized contraception if the church in America had succeeded in doing what our faith calls us to do. So be not afraid. The contraceptive mentality is characterized foremost by fear. People who use contraception are afraid that God will not provide. And so they have to use artificial means, take things into their own hands. Because after all, God's a miser. They are afraid that their faithfulness will not be rewarded. And of course, a lot of people tell them uh, that what they're doing is crazy, so they see the uh, lack of reward, but they also have a fear in terms of eternal reward. It's also characterized by fear that we will not be given the graces to control ourselves. 
I want to be clear that the Catholic Church doesn't say to every woman, to every married couple, you have to have as many children as you can from age 15 to 45. That is not what the Church teaches. It simply teaches that with regard to the marital act, if you have to limit the size of your family for a just cause, and there are some out there, then you should do it by controlling yourself, not by using your spouse. To begin this evangelization, we must understand how the consciousness of mentality has affected our trust in the Lord in a negative way. And we must intentionally reject it. Instead, we can embrace the truth by living it. Nothing will demonstrate our commitment to the new evangelization more than our willingness to bring into the world, with God's help, many more little evangelists. The way that we show our love for the church is by loving each other and offering for the good of our nation and our church the fruit of our love. Children. Children who are schooled in the value of love that presents itself in life. Thank you. Thank you very much, Father Bergman. I was just, as Father was speaking, I just wanted to, you, you get that feeling, you want to say yes to our Lord. And uh, I just reminded of that text I read earlier. Trust me in this, says the Lord, and see if the very gates of heaven do not open. And he's not just talking about money. He's talking about giving our life to him and saying, yes, Lord, I will open my heart to do whatever you ask me to do. Whatever it is. And I think for us here at the Institute of Catholic Culture, he's just asking. He's, he's, he's standing there at the door. And you pray to him tonight. Lord, make use of my life. And I will put no walls up. I will do whatever you ask me to do. And I will use the gift, especially here at the Institute, we're learning the faith, learning the truths of our faith, to be able to go out and give a reason answer for the hope that we have in our heart, the joy we have in our heart for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to take our normal break of about three or four minutes for those that need to leave. We've got a very excited lady over here to ask a question. In the Catholic Church, we believe in transubstantiation, that at the consecration, it is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. In the Anglican Church and in the Episcopal Church, I don't know if they don't believe that. How do you make that leap? It's not about individual doctrines. One of the things that happens with a person who converts is ultimately he decides that he is not his own authority. Uh, it might come through that issue, transubstantiation. It might come through the embrace of the Episcopal Church or the culture of death. Whatever happens, when a person embraces the fullness of the faith, he's embracing all of it. And so he doesn't say, uh, I can accept this, but I can't accept that. If he's thinking that way, he's still the Pope. So what he does is he seeks to understand by virtue of his, of his faith. He doesn't try to understand so that he can get to faith. So, so the, the uh, individual... Uh, uh, particular issues like infallibility of the Pope, the transubstantiation, and so forth. These 
uh, ultimately are not really the issue. What, what is really the issue is does he accept that he is no longer his own authority? Every Protestant is ultimately his own authority because what he does is he goes from place to place till he finds the guy who teaches what he wants to hear. He goes to who will tickle his ears. And the Catholic Church doesn't do that. It says this is what the truth is. Can you accept it? I'm just wondering what has been both the reaction of clergy in the Roman Catholic Church and also just your average layperson to you as a married priest and also as an Anglican, I don't even know what you call it, Anglican Catholic. Use, Anglican, Anglican use, Catholic. use Catholic priest. Sure. I told you that a lot of people still think that unity means uniformity and that if we have a diversity of discipline, it's somehow disloyalty. Those people don't have the courage really to talk to me. All right. <laughs> However, there are a lot of them. There are a lot of them. So the ones who talk to me invariably are supportive and uh, speak admirably of the sacrifices that these men have made in being reconciled to Holy Mother Church. Uh, they're pleased to have so many Catholics. The people that don't want to really live out the fullness of the faith, even as they carry the name of Catholic, uh, generally don't, don't say a whole lot to me. My question is, if I understood you correctly, how does a Anglo-Catholic national diocese with their own bishop yes. comprised of small parishes mm -hmm. act as creative minorities as a means of renewal and reform on the Catholic Church in that they are distinct from the normal uh, and I'm not I'm well, that's just, a great question what we, is the good I, I hope that you take home a copy of this uh, apostolic constitution you can also look on the internet for the complementary norms and in that Constitution and in the complementary norms, what it calls for is a cross-pollination of the ordinariates and the Latin dioceses, so much so that the Bishop of Rome, our Holy Father, has actually mandated that Anglican use priests go to seminary alongside Latin Rite priests, and the house of formation is there for the Anglican use people. So they learn how to do our particular liturgy at the House of Formation. But when they're in class, they're with all the other Latin Rite seminarians. So what happens is the Anglican use seminarians get to know the Latin Rite seminarians, and the Latin Rite seminarians get to know each other. And so what the Holy Father envisions is a cross-pollination. Good question. What impact has the creation of these new national ordinariates had on the Anglican-Catholic ecumenical dialogue? None. It's sort of funny. It's like a, the old model of ecumenism, which is, is sort of bankrupt, especially with the writing of Dominus Jesus right in 2000. But they keep talking. I don't know. What is the future of the married priesthood within the Anglican community? Is that something that would continue, or would the future be more with new priests coming in, that celibacy would be required? Yes, the, um, the Apostolic Constitution and the, and the complementary norms say that in the ordinariates across the globe, the norm, the discipline, will be celibacy. But obviously, since so many of the people are converts coming in at the beginning, so they say for the first generation, we're going to see the majority of the people are going to be married clergymen. But in the future, as these parishes begin to raise up vocations, the Apostolic Constitution and the Complementary Norms make clear that the norm will be celibacy. 
It's, in fact, more nuanced than that because the apostolic constitution says that on a case-by-case basis, married men will be able to be ordained. And it doesn't say that they have to be a former minister in the Anglican Communion. So we have to understand how the law works. The law is for life. Life is not lived for the law. And so when exceptions have to be made for pastoral reasons, like allowing me to be ordained so that I could continue to be pastor to people who I was pastor to in the Episcopal Church, those people I was pastor to now, uh, I've been their pastor since 1999. From 1999 to 2004, I was an Episcopal minister. 2007, ordained a Catholic priest, I'm still their pastor. So the exception is made for unity, for the sake of unity. Uh, So in the future, there might be exceptions like that. But the norm will be the norm will absolutely be celibacy. Just following on that question, is there any indication that the Latin rite will change the discipline of celibacy as it sees perhaps how it works well with the apostolic constitution? Well, they, it's interesting that uh, there has never been a time in the history of the church that we didn't have married clergy. And in fact, the Catholic church is made up of uh, 22 churches, Right. One is a Latin church, the other 21 are Eastern churches. And the Eastern churches have a different code of canon law. And that code allows for married men to be ordained priests. So the church already knows what the married clergy looks like and how it works. And so uh, Cardinal Saphir, they had actually um, uh, a gathering, the Holy Father convened a gathering 2005 or 2006. And uh, one of the things that the deacon would like me to talk about in the future is defending priestly celibacy. Sounds odd, a guy that's a married priest uh, (laughs) talking about uh, the value of priestly celibacy. But the people who know most acutely the value of celibacy are those who are married priests. (laughs) This is a paradox. Many people approach it from a theoretical perspective. I don't. I live it. And that's why my wife isn't here, for example. Uh, So Cardinal Saphir, who is the patriarch of the Lebanese church, that is the, the Maronite Catholic Church, he said that celibacy is the most precious gem. And he has married priests. He's 50-50. 50% married, 50% celibate. And he said that celibacy is the most precious gem in the Catholic Church. So even the Eastern Catholics see the value a priestly celibacy, and in the future I'll come down here and tell you more about it. You were saying there's a difference between the Anglican liturgy and the Catholic liturgy. Yes. Uh, so what's the difference between both uh, of them? First of all, our liturgy is Catholic. But the difference, if you were to come to our liturgy, our Catholic liturgy, as differentiated from the typical Latin rite liturgy of the ordinary form, uh, what is called by some people the Novus Ordo, the thing that you would notice first is that our peace comes before the offertory because you're supposed to make peace with your brother before you bring your gifts to the altar. So the peace is not after the Eucharistic prayer but before it. And the second thing is the confession of sins that you do at the beginning of every Mass. We do it in the middle right before the peace because the way that we share the peace with our brothers horizontally is because we have first made peace with our Father in the forgiveness of sins. So the, there's the confession of sins and then the peace immediately after that, right before the offertory. That's the thing that you would notice first. Um, otherwise, it's very similar. Thank you very much, Father.
I want to clarify one thing for our Institute of Catholic Culture people. We don't want to be thinking in terms of I am for married clergy or I am against married clergy. I'm for celibacy, against celibacy, as Father was saying, that the church always, law is for the sake of life, not life for the sake of law. This is a New Testament kind of versus Old Testament understanding, very much so. And so always within the church there has been the practice of celibacy for the clergy, always upheld as a way to life, sanctity, and always also married clergy, especially in the East. And so for, for Eastern Catholics, as I am, we honor, we cherish celibacy as a way to holiness, and that's his purpose, his way to holiness. And also, marriage is a way to holiness both. And that's why I wanted Father to come and speak on this. I think he has a perspective that we're going to find in very few other places as to the value of these disciplines of the church, laws of the church, in order to get ourselves to eternal life. So, if you could please stand, and we'll conclude in prayer. The Lord be with you. The peace of God is passed with all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be amongst you and remain with you forever. Amen. Thank you very much, Father. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.